glaciers was splashing around and around in circles, grasping at his face, clawing at his back. They stepped forward and plunged into the water, and the princess had only time to let out one shriek of surprise before the water enveloped them both. We it's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's always my pleasure to bring you these tales and to have you bring them into your home and into your heart. We're thrilled every time that you tune in. And of course, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts and stories that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room or even the Zoom call those kinds of sharing experiences can make for memories that last a lifetime. It's going to be a great hour today. We've got stories from Bob Reiser and from Danielle Ballone. We've got an entry in the Radio Family Journal and a conversation with a friend and more all this hour in the Appleseed. And we're going to begin with a story from Bob Reiser. This is uh, from a collection of stories called Foibles and Fiddlesticks, Fables for Grown-Ups, Fables. These stories that teach us lessons of one kind or another. Aesop is perhaps the most famous practitioner of fables. Hundreds and hundreds of Aesop's fables can be found in elementary schools and living rooms and at bedtime in all kinds of storytelling contexts. This one was written by Bob and just as a lot of traditional fables feature animals from whom we can learn the lessons of the stories, this one too features a mollusk a particularly beautiful mollusk and her wonderful smile. Here's Bob Reiser with the mollusk's tale here on The Appleseed. Long ago, in a far-off sea, there lived a proud family of oysters. They had inhabited the underside of the same rock by the same old shipwreck in a bright lagoon for generation after generation, as solid and as dependable as the great current that flowed from the west. There was a mother, a father, a son named George, and a daughter named, of course, Pearl. As they grew, the young ones learned the ancient ways of oysters, sitting, opening their mouths to eat, closing their mouths to digest. George was a sturdy shell of a lad, but Pearl... Oh, Pearl, she was her parents' pride and joy. Oh, what a pretty smile she has, her mom would say. With that smile, she could win the heart of any mollusk alive. One day, a piece of grit that had come from the Indian Ocean or the China Sea drifted her way and got stuck in her mouth. She sucked. She spit. She coughed. <coughs> but it wouldn't go away. Well, why don't you floss, dear? asked her mother. Well, she tried. She yanked on seaweed and sea grasses, but nothing worked. 
That grit was in there to stay. And then something very peculiar began to happen in her mouth. Something seemed to be growing in there. Something smooth, and slippery. Something embarrassing. Hey, yes, sis," called her brother. "What's wrong with your mouth?" Nothing," she mumbled, trying not to open her mouth. "You got something in there?" <laughs> He laughed. "You, I don't. I bet it's a pearl. Pearl's got a pearl. Pearl's got a pearl." <laughs> she shouted, and with that, she shut her shell tight. From that minute, Pearl clammed up or oystered up. She was not going to let anyone make fun of whatever that was growing in her mouth. Well, her parents grew worried. They brought in specialists, barnacles and starfish to take a look, but no one could get her to open her mouth. They brought in clown oysters and rainbow fish to get her to laugh. But nothing worked. No one could get her to open her mouth, and that's how it was. The day that the great shadow fell over the underwater lagoon near the great rock by the shipwreck. Up above, they could see the shape of a human ship, trolling around and around in circles. This was not good, for whenever the human ship appeared, trouble always followed. Sure enough, soon strange human fish with split tails and scrawny gills and humps on their backs began to descend into the water, and from their hands silver knives glittered. The mollusks down below stopped smiling and waited. Pearl and her family shut their mouths tight, as only an oyster can do. These were pearl fishers. Suddenly, just in front of her, there was a commotion and a thrashing. One of the fishers was splashing around and around in circles, grasping at his face, clawing at his back. Pearl could see bubbles pouring up from the hump on his back. How strange! With all this water, he looked like he couldn't breathe. Well, no mollusk moved to help. This was the enemy. No one moved, except Pearl. Slowly, so slowly, she let herself be pulled towards him by the current. She had heard of humans. She had heard of the horror stories about their long knives and their hideous faces, but she had never actually seen one. Stay back, sis," mumbled George, keeping his mouth shut tight. But she was curious. She might never get another chance to see a real live human monster. Pearl, this is none of our concern," shouted her father as loud as he dared. She glided right up to the thrashing creature. She could see its face. She could see its eyes, and for a single instant. She and the creature stared at one another. A great drop of water had formed in the creature's eye, 
and was rolling down its face. It didn't look like a monster. It looked terrified. Pearl wanted to say something, anything, and without thinking, her great mouth opened, and she cried, Oh! The creature's eyes nearly popped from his head. There, inside her mouth, was the shiniest, most enormous pearl seen by oyster or man. Without meaning to, he reached towards her. At that moment, from the surface, a stray beam of sunlight struck the pearl. It was like a flame had been lit, for the entire ocean seemed to flare up with the brilliance of that pearl. It was as if a great spotlight had been turned on. While a monster pulled back from the glare, the other divers turned towards the light, and they began to swim furiously towards its source. When they got there, the ocean had gone dark again. All they could see was their companion gasping for air and pointing down at the sand. Quickly they pulled him to the surface and dove back into the water to find the source of that amazing light. But Pearl knew what people did when they found oysters with light in their mouth. She lay quietly, closed up tight under the sand, until they went away. After that, life changed for Pearl. They called her the oyster with fire in her mouth. And whenever there was trouble in the undersea community, shipwrecks, lost baby fish, Pearl was called in to bring her light. She traveled from ocean to ocean, bringing her beacon with her. It was a long and exciting life. She had learned the great lesson known by oyster sages since the beginning of time. She had learned when to open her mouth and when to keep it shut. The Mollusk's Tale here on the Appleseed, a fable from Bob Reiser. In fact, it's from a collection of fables called Foibles and Fiddlesticks, Fables for Grown-Ups. We're going to take a quick break, but then we'll be back with a conversation with a friend and a story about a princess so lighthearted she floats. It's an old tale by George MacDonald, and you won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a story from Bob Reiser, a fable from a collection of fables called Foibles and Fiddlesticks, Fables for Grown-Ups. That story was called The Mollusk's Tale. In just a little bit here, we're going to get to a story told for you by Danielle Ballone, an old George MacDonald story about a princess so lighthearted she floats. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? (music) 
stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, from telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through terrific songs, the things we choose to see on screen, and in so many other ways, and exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds as part of what we love here on The Appleseed. I'm joined by Rachel Wadham, a longtime member of our BYU Radio family, bringing insights into children's literature to programs like Worlds Awaiting on BYU Radio for a long time now. She's also the Education and Juvenile Collections Librarian at Brigham Young University. Rachel, it's great to have you. I'm always excited to be here. <laughs> we get excited to talk about... Stories! Just, yeah, that's right. And sometimes we find ourselves talking about books that are old favorites, and sometimes we get introduced to new things, yep. which is just as exciting, of course. Well, and you know, one of the new things, one of the new books, and it just came out this past year, is an amazing book by Aaron and Trotta Kelly, and it's called Leilani of the Distant Sea. Leilani of Leilani the Distant Sea. Now, that title alone, just, it's just, just like, fun to it, say. Just, it comes off, rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and it really has this wonderful, evocative sense of what the story is going to be about, right? So uh, we know who the main character is. Yeah. We know it's Leilani. And we know that there's a distant sea involved <laughs> as part of the setting. But the cool thing about this book is that it draws on folklore, hmm. and it really takes that folkloric storytelling sense and how a folklore story is told hmm. and brings it into kind of a modern context and weaves it in with Leilani's story. Leilani, which, of course, being a contemporary person, Yes, right? yeah, yeah. So yeah. she's more of a fantasy. It's, it's set in kind of a fantasy realm. So there hmm. is there is this sense of that contemporary kind of thing. I think you would think of her more of being like a Pacific Islander, right? Oh, sure, so she's sure. Filipino, yeah. has this kind of sense of, you might think, you know, Hawaii or New Zealand or something yeah. like that, where she's on this island. And it really is this interesting kind of mix of modern and ancient storytelling forms, hmm. which I think is a really cool thing for us as storytellers to yeah. kind of consider. But it's also an interesting thing for us as readers to consider hmm. is how these older forms or older ways of telling a story have actually impacted our storytelling forms today. Hmm. Because when we think about folklore, it really is very foundational to what the way we tell stories. Yeah. And we even think of classic authors like Tolkien and yeah. C.S. Lewis and these types of things. They drew on these kinds of really impactful storytelling forms in such a powerful way. And this book does that, but it intersperses the folkloric storytelling with the modern story and goes back and forth. And so there's these little sections in the book where it tells the folklore story of a, a magical creature that would you would be sure to find in folklore, right? You know, these these kind of creatures that, you know, do really weird things and, and are strange to our sensibilities and talks about, you know, what if you were this kind of creature and, and what if that was your life and how did this work and has this wonderful sense of the story. And then we go into Leilani's story and we actually meet these creatures in kind of real life and they impact her in her real life. And it's this wonderful juxtaposition of those two storytelling forms, which just makes it a rich, rich, complex, very complex story. I'm thinking about, as you talk about 
the difference between and, and, and this is a difference that we impose on the storytelling, right? The difference between telling stories of our own families and and the stories that we tell that are sort of steeped in folklore. You know, we find a different tone and a different stance and even a different kind of lexicon, right? When we're talking when we're talking folklore. Yes, right? it, it's true. That's yeah. a great way to describe it. We do use different language. Yeah. We use different structures when we talk about it. Like when we're telling a family story. We might use a lot of detail, yeah. right? And we would talk about the the setting and where we were and what happened and and maybe even the smells and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. But folkloric forms really strip a lot of that out, right? right? They aren't yeah. as detailed and they don't tell us a lot about the specific details. They give us kind of a broad overview. Yeah. And that's why they can be kind of once upon a time sure. because they really don't have a very specific place or a very specific setting, yeah. but they really have this sense of universality to them yeah. that a family story might not in the same way. And it's fun for me to think about a story as you're describing here that jumps back and forth between the between the two forms, yeah. Yeah. which is really tricky. I mean, as a writer, it's really tricky to jump between those two voices. Yeah. And that, that's one of the things I love about Erin and Trotta Kelly is that she is able to jump back and forth between these forms in a beautiful way, which which is very shows her skill <laughs> as, as a writer and as a storyteller yeah. and all of these forms and how they work together. But it's interesting how they kind of impinge on each other, because when we think about folklore, it really does impact us as our lives and these folkloric stories mean so much to us. I yeah. mean, that's one of the reasons that Disney can make so much money is these kind of folkloric <laughs> fairy tales mean a lot to us, sure. right, at a very yeah. foundational level. And that is really cool to me to add that element in of, you know, this is something that is important to our life in a very different kind of context. And then to bring in that culturally aware kind of sense of there's different kinds of folklore and different kinds of creatures and different yeah. kind of folklore. And, you know, if you're talking Japanese, folklore, you counter different kinds of creatures than you would if you're in German folklore, right? And bringing that in and that multicultural element to yeah. it gives it, again, this sense of personal family story, yeah. but yet folklore, but yet real, you know, authored story. And it's, just, it's this wonderful combination of all of those in one place, which, which is highly unique. Yeah. As you talk about the story, I'm thinking about some of the... I, I, I'm. It's bringing to mind for me uh, the a couple of films. I'm thinking. Oh of, yeah. I'm thinking of the Secret of Rowan Inish. Oh, definitely. Or, or Whale Rider. Exactly. Right? These these exactly. films in which a, in in which a modern character finds themselves sort of inserted into the or growing in acquaintance with the folklore of their exactly. People, right? Yeah. That yeah. those are great examples. I yeah. think those would be great analogies to this. So if you like those films, you'll definitely like. Ah, <laughs> Leilani of the Distant Sea. Yes. I just want to keep saying it. I know it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And yeah, and Erin and Trotta Kelly, she is an amazing storyteller. So uh -huh. I, you know, I highly recommend her other books as well. She's an award-winning storyteller and just has a really great hand. But this one in particular is so unique and so powerful. Leilani of the Distant Sea, thanks for introducing it to us, Rachel Wadham. It's great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, certainly through the tales that we tell from teller to listener over generation and generation and generation. And, of course, from the films that we see and the television programs we choose to watch and the books that we read as well. It's always a pleasure to chat with Rachel and today about Leilani of the Distant Sea.
Coming up now, we've got a story from Danielle Bologna. Danielle lives in New Orleans. She's got a couple of dogs, one named Grover Cleveland and one named Birdie June. And as Danielle Bologna embarked on her career as a storyteller, she vowed at the beginning that she would never tell a story in which a girl was saved by a boy. Well, then she discovered this story from George MacDonald and fell in love with it. It's easy to fall in love with. George MacDonald has written a lot of fairy tales that a lot of people have fallen in love with. He wrote in the 1800s, among his fans are a lot of people with whose work you're probably familiar. Lewis Carroll was influenced by George MacDonald. Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland. J.M. Barrie, who wrote Peter Pan. Mark Twain. L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz. Lloyd Alexander, who wrote The Black Cauldron and those books. J.R.R. Tolkien and his Lord of the Rings. Certainly people like Madeline Langle. These people all look to George MacDonald as an influence. And uh, this is one of those George MacDonald stories. It's called The Light Princess, and it's a story about a princess who is so lighthearted that she, well, she floats. Here's Danielle Ballon in a live performance of her version of The Light Princess by George MacDonald here on The Appleseed. Once upon a time, There was a king and queen who had remained childless for a lot longer than anybody quite thought proper. Now, the king blamed the queen for this. The queen knew that the fault was none of her own. She also knew that she was married to rather a silly man. She was a very nice queen, and she was sorry not to be able to oblige him immediately. She said, you must have patience with a lady. And the king did try to have patience, but he succeeded very badly at it. (laughs) It was more than he deserved, therefore, when the queen did conceive and bear a child, a princess. Now, it came time for the princess to be christened, and as happens with all grand affairs of state, someone is bound to be forgotten. And it just so happened that on this particular occasion, the person to be forgotten was the king's own sister, which was awkward. (laughs) The king's sister was the Dowager Comtesse. The Dowager Comtesse had been uh, unpleasant for a very long time. She was learned in the magical arts, which nobody minded except that her magic grew darker and blacker until she became a widow rather sooner than anyone quite thought proper. So you can imagine why someone might wish to forget her, and you can also understand what a mistake it would be to do so. Now, the Dowager Comtesse was not the sort to cause a fuss, but rather, on the day of the christening, she crept into the palace, went to the baptismal font, and withdrew from her pocket a stone of blackest onyx with a snake carved on it. She held that stone over the baptismal waters and she said, light of spirit by my charms, light of body, every part, never weary human arms, but only crush your parents' heart. And with that, she withdrew. The mischief had been wrought. 
Now, the mischief wrought by the Dowager Comtesse became apparent when the baptismal waters were sprinkled on the princess's forehead, and she gave out a shriek, and the nurse who was holding her gave out a similar shriek, for all of a sudden she could not feel the baby in her arms at all, which was awkward. (laughs) The first real moment of awkwardness came when the king went to take his baby daughter in his hands, found that he could not feel her at all. He began waving her about. (laughs) And when he opened his hands just the littlest bit, the princess floated up to the ceiling until she bumped gently into the ceiling, giving out, oh, such peals of needling, hollow laughter. The king was confused. (laughs) She can't possibly be ours. Now, the queen, who had been present at the princess's birth, (laughs) you might even say a participant at the princess's birth, took her husband's hand and said, Yes, dear, she most certainly is ours, but what are we going to do about it? The king said, Steward, fetch the steps I use to get up on my throne. He was rather a short king, and it may be supposed that this contributed some to his ill temper. The throne steps were fetched and placed upon a table, and the steward tried to reach the princess, who was still laughing out with her needling, empty laughter, but he couldn't quite reach her until the queen said, Steward, fetch the tongs. (laughs) So the tongs were fetched, and the steward on top of the table on top of the throne steps was finally able to reach the giggling, shrieking princess, and it was by this means that the princess was finally reached and handed down. And so it was that she had to be managed from that point forward. Windows had to be shut because the slightest breeze could pick her up and take her away outside. Whenever she did go outside, she had to have a tether around her waist and an attendant to hold the tether. And I will not even insult you by suggesting the possibility of horseback riding. (laughs) The servants took a rather light view of this situation, and they, as though I hadn't given you enough puns already, the servants took a rather light view of the situation, and they played ball with her below stairs, which is to say that they used the princess as the ball. They had to be careful, though, never to thrust upward, because the slightest push in the upward direction could send her all the way up to the ceiling, and she couldn't be gotten again until she had been fetched. Above stairs, however, the situation was viewed a little more gravely. The king counted his money and took no joy in it. The queen ate her bread and honey and took no joy in it. One day, mid-bite, she said, My child, my child. The king said, What is the matter? She's not unhappy. And indeed, this was true because the princess's peals of needling, hollow laughter could be heard rebounding throughout the kingdom. In fact, continued the king, one might say that it is rather a good thing to be (laughs) lighthearted. But it is a terrible thing to be light-minded. And what's more, it is an awful thing to be (laughs) light-haired. 
The king could have taken offense at this. You see, the queen had long, raven-colored tresses, and his and the princess's hair was more amber-colored, so he might have felt insulted, except that he could not be sure that she hadn't said light-aired. And the king detested punning of every sort. (laughs) And perhaps she had a point, because vapid and intolerably loud as the princess was, how was she ever to be married and have children? He might end up light-aired. And both of them flounced out of the room, very irritable, and determined that a solution should be found. But no solution made itself apparent. The court metaphysicists were called in and could find no solution. And so the princess grew long and willowy and continued to float about the palace like a bubble, shrieking her needling laughter and generally just floating around. She never could manage to see the serious side of anything because the Dowager Comtesse's curse had deprived her of her gravity in that form as well. So she just floated about, and no real harm came to her other than once getting stuck up the chimney. (laughs) But it did grieve her parents. Now, it came to be the princess's 17th birthday, and the king and queen did want to throw a party for her. The only people in attendance were the king and queen themselves and a few servants, because as you can imagine, it's difficult to make friends when you never take anything or anyone seriously enough to mind losing them. She had no friends, and it was only out of familial duty that her parents even stuck by her at all. But they still wanted to throw her a party, and so they took several boats out onto a lake that adjoined the palace. And when the princess expressed a wish to join a different boat, the king picked her up, and she weighed no more than a downy quilt. And he went to step on to the next boat, which was drawn toward him. Now, as I have mentioned, the king was rather a short fellow, and it may be presumed that he overestimated the length of his legs. (laughs) As he stepped from one boat to another, he missed the seat entirely and pitched forward, resulting in him smacking his face flat onto the side of the boat, and the princess went pitching forward into the lake. And the assembled party all (gasps) gasped because they had never seen the princess go downward before. (laughs) And they watched, horrified, until she rose to the surface. (gasps) Oh, oh, this is, this is wonderful. For the first time in her life, the princess was able to, on purpose, propel herself forward or backward or even, if she wished it, down. This was an autonomy that she had never known before. And she was thrilled. She refused to come out of the lake for more than a few hours from that point forward. And her parents allowed it because they noticed that when she was in the lake, she seemed somehow calmer, somehow more sedate, somehow gentler. And it was not very long before she began to love that lake as much as she was capable of loving anything. Now, the king and queen noticed that there might be some solution in this, so they called forth the court metaphysicists who entered into a great study, and they concluded that if water from such an external source could have such an effect on the princess, then water from a deeper source might break the curse entirely. 
Yes, if the princess could be made to cry, she might regain her gravity. And so every method possible was tried. The king and queen paraded before her a string of beggars and wretches and widows and orphans, all telling their sob stories. Violinists played heart-wrenching sonatas. An entire barrel full of onions was cut up before her. But not one tear did she shed. The king was so determined that this should be given a thorough trial that he even caught her by the heel and proceeded to give her the most terrible whipping. And though her face grew rather serious and her laughter sounded more uncommonly like screaming, she didn't shed a single tear. So they gave up. They allowed her to spend her time in the lake, about as happy as she could be at that point. Now, it was around this time that a prince from a neighboring kingdom set off on a quest, because that is what princes do. (laughs) In fact, he always did what princes do. This particular prince was a man of very great gravity. He went about doing exactly what was expected of him. He was courteous and gallant and well-educated, and he did exactly what was expected of him, except, well, smile. But what is that to a prince? He set off on a quest and went about slaying, rescuing the various things that princes do because he was supposed to. None of it seemed to bring him any joy. But he continued on his way until he came to the side of a lake. And he peered across that lake in the late evening, and he heard strange sounds. You will, of course, know that this was the princess's laughter, but he did not recognize it as laughter because, as I have mentioned, it was rather strange, rather hollow, and rather like a shriek. He saw her flailing about, and he did not hesitate, because there was not enough light to tell that it was a princess, but there was enough light to tell it was a woman. It does not need very much light to tell that. (laughs) And so he stripped off his tunic, his sword, his sandals, and he dove into the water to rescue her. He caught her up in his arms, and she was flailing and thrashing the entire time, and he swam to the bank, and he gave a great heave to push her up onto the bank. And you will know, of course, that as soon as she was out of the water, her gravitation ceased. She screamed at him. She said, you naughty, naughty man, why would you do such a thing? Why would you take me out of the water? What were you thinking? And it was only by grabbing on to the branch of a pine tree that she was not carried away entirely. And she pulled herself, branch by branch, back down towards the prince, all the time screaming at him. And uh, he chuckled just a bit. (laughs) For he knew now that he had come upon an enchanted princess. And it was a little absurd. (laughs) And he enjoyed the absurdity. (laughs) And as she continued to scream at him, she said, Put me back in now. He said, How shall I put you in? She said, you took me out of the water, you figure it out. He said, okay. He picked her up, she weighed no more than a feather, and he carried her around the side of the lake, up 
to a place where the bank rose some 15 feet above the water. He said, would you care for a fall? She said, what? He said, good. They stepped forward and plunged into the water, and the princess had only time to let out one shriek of surprise before the water enveloped them both. They came gasping to the surface. She said, what was that? He said, how do you like falling in? Falling in? Well, well, that was falling. To think, I have never fallen before. How do you like falling in? He said, I like it better than anything that I have ever done, for I have fallen in with a most delightful creature. She said, stop that. (laughs) Perhaps she shared her father's dislike of punning. (laughs) Just the beginning of The Light Princess, a story written in 1864 by George MacDonald, who wrote a lot of fairy tales and became a big influence on a lot of fantasy writers of today. The performance you're hearing is from Danielle Ballon. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get back to it here on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's a pleasure to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. At the top of the hour, you heard a fable from Bob Reiser about a mollusk, the mollusk's tale, it was called. And it's part of a collection of fables written by Bob called Foibles and Fiddlesticks. Fables for Grown-Ups. And you heard a conversation with Rachel Wadham about a book called Leilani, The Distant Sea. And before the break, you heard the beginning of a story by George MacDonald. George MacDonald, who wrote a lot of things that influenced a lot of the fantasy authors with whom you may be familiar. The story that we began to hear is called The Light princess about a princess so lighthearted that she floats and a prince has just figured out a way to help her swim. She couldn't get down into the water before, but he holds her in his arms and jumps off a rock and into the water they go. It's more fun than she's ever had. What's going to become of the relationship between the prince and the light princess? Well, that's the rest of the story. Here's Danielle Ballone on The Appleseed. in, perhaps we should go for a swim. And so they did. They swam together, each having a better time than either of them could remember having. And the prince was very sorry to see her go when she had to go inside. Now the next day, he wanted to see her again, but he didn't want to come upon her as he had before. And so he waited by the side of the lake and began to sing. Waters blue, part not from her, but renew cold and true kisses round her. Lap me round, waters sad that have left her, make me glad for you had kissed her ere you left her. And when he finished his song, the princess was there. Waiting, her ears had led her there. When he saw her, he said, care for a fall? She said, yes. And so they continued to swim together. 
And the prince, the prince was finding himself in love. But of course, any time she exited the water, she became immediately flighty and irascible. <laughs> he thought, if ever we are to be married, we shall have to become mermaids and live in the ocean. <laughs> there is no other way around it. Now, this continued for some days. And whenever the prince spoke to the princess of love, she only appeared confused, as though she were trying to understand something but could not. But they were both as happy as either of them could remember being. And this was a problem for someone who has been forgotten. The dowager Comtesse heard of the princess's new circumstances, and she was angry that her curse had been avoided, that a loophole had been found. And so she retreated to her cavern where she took care of all things magical. And from a deep and black pot, she dropped a stone and allowed that stone to simmer until all the water in it had evaporated and then withdrew from that black pot a single white snake which wound around her arm. She went deeper into that cavern until she came to a place that was beneath the princess's beloved lake. She took the snake and stuck his fangs into the rock and the water began to drip, drip, drip into the snake until that snake became bloated until it was so bloated that it could not continue to live and it fell off of the rock dead and the water drip, drip, dripped from the stone into the cavern below. She would drain the lake and tie the life of the lake to the life of the princess. And so one day, while the princess was swimming with the prince, she noticed the water level was a little lower and it seemed to distress her And she got weaker and weaker until she couldn't make it outside at all. She couldn't leave her chamber. She couldn't move. She certainly could not shriek her needling, empty, hollow laughter at all. Now, every curse must have an antidote. And the king and queen saw that their daughter was dying. And they called forth the court metaphysicists again and said, What solution can we find? They searched in all of their great books until they found one single verse which might be helpful. It said, Death alone from death can save. Love is death, and so it is brave. Love can fill the deepest grave. Love loves on beneath the wave which may sound mysterious to you or I, but was very plain to the court metaphysicists, who concluded that what must happen in order for the lake, and therefore the princess's life, to be saved, a volunteer would have to be found. A volunteer must give himself up, find the place where the lake was draining, and plug himself into that very hole. The lake would refill itself, But he would drown in the process. He must do so knowingly and willingly out of love. Else, if the nation could not find such a hero, it was time the nation should perish anyway. 
And so a call for heroes would put out, but as I have mentioned, the princess did not have any friends. And no one found themselves willing to die for her, not even the king and queen. In fact, it seemed that no one would answer the call for a hero, except the prince. He thought, without her, my life holds no joy at all. Is that really worth living? So he offered himself up. He went to the king. He said, I will volunteer to die for the princess on one condition. The king said, condition? Condition? Do you have any idea how many people I... No, really, there's no one. What do you want? (laughs) He said, let me do this for her, but let her be there. Carry her out on a little boat so that she is with me, and let her stay there until I am dead. For I know no other joy if I may not look upon her face. The king said, why didn't you say so? That's not so bad. (laughs) Now by this time the lake had shrunk. It had dripped, dripped, dripped until there was only a puddle left. And they could see very clearly the hole that the dowager comtesse had created with that snake. And so the prince found the hole he stuck his feet in. And that didn't do it, so he stuck his arms in as well. And in this awkward, crouching position, he waited. And as he waited, the water did begin to trickle back in, as if by magic. Now, the princess was brought out onto a little boat, and that boat was set on the land where the lake had been. It was now dry. And she waited with him. I guess it's good that you're doing this. She said, I'm bored. Will you entertain me? This was rather absurd. The prince found himself enjoying the absurdity of this situation, too. He said, what shall I do? She said, I don't know. I would ask you to dance, but I feel like you're maybe not in a position to do that. Will you sing? And so he began to sing for her. He sang, Waters blue, part not from her, but renew cold and true kisses round her. Lap me round, waters sad that have left her, make me glad, for you had kissed her ere you left her. And as he was singing, that water was trickling back in, and and it was up to his knees. He said, may I? She said, what? Kiss you. She said, I suppose. And she leaned over so that he just was able to get one peck on her cheek, and he smiled. She said, will you sing again? So he did. Waters blue, part not from her, but renew cold and true kisses round her. And the water was up to his shoulders. She said, sing for me again. Lap me round, waters sad that have left her, make me glad for you had kissed her ere you left her. She said, that was really nice. Will you sing it again? And so he did. 
She said, will you sing it again? And so he did. And as he sang, that water rose higher and higher and higher until he was singing and the water was up to his chin. She said, will you sing it again? And the water came up over his mouth and he could not sing it again. And she began to feel that this was something that she might miss. Something that she did not want to lose. She said, would you sing again? Would you please sing again? But he couldn't. The water rose higher over his nose. And finally up over his eyes and over his head. And she thought, no, no, because there was what she could not lose. And so she jumped into the water, well, fell rather, and fell ungracefully and fell and fell into the water and tried to heave him up. She came up for breath, but that reminded her that he could not get any breath. And so she dove again and pulled and she pulled and she pulled until he came free. And with all of the effort that she had in her body, she heaved him on to the boat and called out for the servants, for anyone to come and help. They dragged him to the shore and he was not breathing. She said, save him, please. Someone save him. Her nurse came out and did what small magics she could until the prince His eyes fluttered open. She said, Oh, there you are. I fell in. And as he breathed, she cried such tears of relief. For here was what she could not lose and then knew that she wouldn't. He opened his eyes. He looked at her. He said, I fell in too. The prince and the princess, of course, were betrothed, although their wedding had to be put off for quite some time for the princess to learn to walk properly. (laughs) Because as soon as she cried, that curse was broken. She fell immediately to the floor, unable to use the muscles that she had not been able to develop in all of her life, and had to learn to walk, had to learn to run, to jump, to ride a horse, (laughs) had to learn to do everything all over again. But it was all right, because she had the prince there with her to help her to laugh with her. And as she had learned to cry, so he had learned to laugh. And by being willing to give up everything for love, they had rescued each other. Their curses were both broken, and they spent that day forward falling in and falling in and falling in. Thank The Light Princess, written by George MacDonald in the 1860s and performed live there, a version of it by Danielle Ballon. A pleasure to bring you that story and, of course, to bring you the Bob Reiser piece that we brought you at the beginning of the hour and the conversation with Rachel Wadden. We have just a few minutes left. And how about we fill them with an entry in the Radio Family Journal? The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it. On the Appleseed. 
The year I turned five, we were traveling. My dad, the folk singer, had a little series of gigs across the northern border in Canada, and we all went along. My mom, my little brother Joe, my baby brother Dave, and me. And there's a lot about that trip that I don't remember, but there are moments that shine through in bright, sharp relief, even after so many years. In those days, the family car was a big yellow cargo van that my dad used to carry sound equipment. For family trips, we'd rig up seats in the cargo area or spread out cushions and blankets and roll around back there reading books or snacking on potato chips and orange slices. I remember driving slowly on a highway, slowly because traffic had been backed up by a couple of bears on the road. Everybody got through it safely, even the bears, and I got to see bears. A couple of miles later, on the same road, we saw a gang of elk. No kidding, a gang. Did you know that was the collective noun for elk? Well, we saw one. A gang of elk, lolling in a clearing among the trees just off the highway. On another day, we wound up a mountain road and, coming around a corner, overtook a bighorn sheep trotting along the road's gravel shoulder. My dad slowed the van down, and we drove alongside it for a few hundred feet just watching. What an amazing critter that was. The other memories I have of Canada are birthday memories. I turned five on that trip. The day of my birthday, June 10th, dawned gray. We were far from home, but my dad found a park in the town where we were, and the park had a baseball diamond, and we took a ball down there and played catch, and ran the bases, and took a break, and swung on the swings, and as we did that, my mom sewed a little patch depicting the Canadian flag onto my little down vest, a memento of the trip. Later, in the hotel where we were staying, my mom produced a birthday cake. It had five candles. It was decorated with little plastic animals that she had bought on the seasonal aisle of the little grocery store down the street from the hotel. Somehow, I felt like Canada and I were in a relationship after that. Do you have a place like that? A place that lives in a rich place in your memory, even though you only went there once or twice, or even just in your imagination? Well, months after we got home from Canada, for Christmas that year, in fact, my mom had taken bits of cloth and had sewed them onto a big blanket to make a map of the places that were important to us. The map had roads on it made of gray fabric where I could drive my matchbox cars. We could roll the map out on the floor, and I could drive my cars around on it to these places my mom had represented there. There was a house in the middle of the map made of a white square of cloth with a brown triangle for the roof. The house sat in the middle of a big green field. That was my house. And there were three gray roads leading from my house. One went directly to the left, to a little fabric square with a rectangle on top that represented my grandmother's house, my dad's folks. They lived in Southern California. Then there was another gray road that went sort of northwest from our house, and at the end of that road, another fabric house that represented my mom's folks, my grandparents that lived in northern California. And then going straight north from our house all the way to the very top edge of the blanket, a gray fabric road that terminated in a patch just like the one on my down vest, a little patch that depicted the Canadian flag. And there it was, all the places I'd gone, depicted in fabric on a blanket where I could visit them again, driving my matchbox cars, the place where I lived, the place where my grandma Payne lived, the place where my grandma Pappas lived, and Canada. I've been more places since then. 
Any map to chart it all would be much more complicated than the map my mother made so long ago. It would have to include places that you can only get to by flying in an airplane and not by matchbox car. It would have to include oceans for boats and exotic foods and language guides, city lights and snowy peaks and deserts. But I keep that blanket in my closet still, that old blanket that serves as a record of what the world looked like to me when I was five. A record of all the places, all the places I, at five, felt like I was the master of. My house, my grandma's house, other grandma's house, and Canada. What world back then could possibly be vast enough to include anything else? The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. And it's been a pleasure for us to bring you stories by Danielle Ballon and from Bob Reiser and a conversation with Rachel Wadham. Always a pleasure to have you tune in. Find us online at byuradio.org. All kinds of great stuff there. And, of course, you can Google the Appleseed podcast as well. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. Our producer, Jeff Simpson. This hour was written by Ashley Zollinger. I'm Sam Payne. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Join us again, won't you, on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.